Where's Pancake's house? What? We stop at Pancake's house. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, I, like many other kids, not only read comic books, but collected them also. The early 90s saw a massive resurgence in popularity, and many popular titles were in effect rebooted. Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man No. 1 is probably one of the most iconic comic covers in history. We saw the Jim Lee reboot of the X-Men series, additionally a reboot of Ghost Rider, and the birth of Image Comics, who would go on to publish major properties like Spawn and The Walking Dead. It was during this time period that we also saw an influx of brand new characters all vying to become the next great superhero. We were introduced to characters like Gambit, War Machine, Cable, and of course Rob Liefeld's brainchild, Deadpool. I remember Deadpool meandering around the New Mutants books, but personally I never understood the draw. To me, he just seemed like another 90s wannabe superhero with a modified Spider-Man costume design and a shit ton of leather pockets and pouches. If you wanted to be a superhero in the early 90s, you had to have a fuckload of pockets and pouches. And Deadpool creator Rob Liefeld was hands down the absolute worst offender of this crutch. Rob had a lot of other issues too, one being the fact that he can't fucking draw. As much as I want to hate Deadpool right now, let's hold off for a second and look into the amazing career of comic book artist Rob Liefeld. Before I begin, I do need to give credit where credit is due. Much of this content can be found, and then some, from a 2012 article on ProgressiveBoink.com by Bill Hanstock. It's a long read, but it's well worth it. Now, Rob had done some work at DC before heading on over to Marvel in 1989. Rob's first major project was penciling the low-selling X-Men offshoot The New Mutants, starting with issue 86. By issue 98, Rob was given complete creative control over the entire series. The New Mutants ended with issue 100, and a new rebooted version was born. X-Force. In 1991, Liefeld was featured in a Levi's Jeans commercial directed by Spike Lee, just to give you an idea of how popular he was at the time. Rob's ego was so out of control at this point that he actually wanted to publish a title called Executioners on rival indie label Malibu Comics, and he was told that he'd be fired if he did so. So, in 1992, Liefeld, along with some other huge comic book artists of the day, like Todd McFarlane, Mark Silvestri, and Jim Lee, all left to form what would become known as Image Comics. How did Rob Liefeld command such artistic power that he was able to form one of the most influential comic book publishing houses to this day? Pouches. Leather pouches and holsters. From Rob's first original creation of Youngblood to Deadpool and many others, something that stands out as an M.O. of Liefeld's art is the ridiculous amount of pockets and satchels that his characters would wear. It seems that the Rob Liefeld School of Character Design provides this only class. What else does it take to reach the towering heights of Liefeld's career? Well, for starters, you should not know a fucking thing about human anatomy. Not just women, men too. Please tell me how in the fuck any of these proportions make sense. I would be thrown in the dumpster of my art school if I handed in work like this, or this, or this. Rob Liefeld owns Arnold Schwarzenegger's sword from Conan, because Rob thought that one day it might not just be the governor's sword, but the president's sword. That should give you a cross-section of Rob's intelligence level, so it's no wonder he created Deadpool. But more on that in a bit. For now, let's just focus on Rob and his basic inability to draw comic books. You see, Rob doesn't understand how women work. 
their bodies, how their parts connect to one another, how they interact. Did I say women? I meant men too. Please tell me how this cover art for Captain America makes any fucking sense whatsoever. And don't forget, somewhere, somehow, some art director approved this cover. He looked at it and he was like, yep, to the printer. Another thing that Rob has no sense of is how to draw feet. What? Since when are superhero feet important like ever? Well, let's take a look at some of Rob's work that unbelievably made him famous, and while you might not know his name, you sure as shit know Deadpool, which most of you will blindly go out and pay money for, regardless of what direct we all know it will turn out to be. I could make this an hour-long video detailing Rob's artistic inadequacies, but all I really need to let you know here is that Rob Liefeld is basically a hack moron with zero professional training as an artist and somebody who actually thinks that a foreign-born citizen can achieve the office of President of the United States. Back to the point. Rob Liefeld created Deadpool, and I use this word create loosely. Why? Because Liefeld's Deadpool and DC Comics' Deathstroke are virtually identical. Identical. From their katana blades to their costumes, even down to their real names, Deadpool's real name is Wade Wilson. Deathstroke's real name? Slade Wilson. Fucking come on. Both wear red and black costumes and of course, both have an unnecessary amount of leather pockets and pouches. Deathstroke, however, part of DC Comics Teen Titans, has been around since 1980 a full 11 years before Deadpool's debut. So why is Deadpool way more of a household name than Deathstroke? Most of you have never even heard of Deathstroke before, but you do all know Deadpool and probably saw the feature film last year. So what makes Deadpool so awesome? Well, I'll tell you. Lame as fuck, lowest common denominator humor, birthed from the mind of a rip-off artist and idiot, Rob Liefeld. A similar question that haunts my mind is, how did Paul Blart Mall Cop succeed? I feel like some alternative timeline was birthed at some point. How in the world could a lame and cheesy, blatantly ripped off, quote, superhero become wildly popular? Unfortunately, and this may come as an insult to some of you listening, Deadpool is really lame and hacky. He doesn't have any real superpowers, just weapons, so basically Deadpool is the Punisher if the Punisher was totally devoid of humor and working extra hard to hack it up and pander to his own audience. The Deadpool movie was beyond meta, and nothing but fan service to those who had been craving a Deadpool film. To enjoy Deadpool is to enjoy Big Johnson t-shirts. To enjoy Deadpool is to celebrate a man who thinks that Arnold Schwarzenegger could realistically become President of the United States and doesn't seem to understand why not. To enjoy Deadpool and be proud of that fact really cements your enjoyment of bland and obvious humor and kind of tells me that you really don't expect anything more from your $14 movie ticket. To me, Deadpool is the epitome of what a 13-year-old wants a superhero to be. Some shit-talking masked idiot thinking that he's too cool and too witty for the room. Meanwhile, he's a blatant ripoff of another character whose creator is too daft to understand that foreign-born citizens can't become president. This is a man whose success comes from the inability to draw proper proportions, feet, or anatomy. This is a guy who, because he wasn't allowed to rip off the X-Men, took his proverbial ball and went home. Deadpool 2 opens in four weeks from now, and I bet that its opening weekend beats the original film. Does that make Deadpool and Deadpool 2 good movies? Absolutely not. The ability to like a movie does not equate to that same film being good. I understand Deadpool is not supposed to be the Godfather or the Dark Knight, but too many people will actually walk away from Deadpool 2 thinking that somehow it's a good movie.
This has basically been the case with almost every single Marvel Cinematic Universe movie that's been released since the first Iron Man. Iron Man 3, The Avengers and its sequels, Thor, Thor 2, Black Widow, Hulk, Black Panther, etc. are all horseshit movies with absolutely zero rewatchability, heart, or passion. Simply eat popcorn while a conglomerate of overpaid overactors interact with the green screen. Yay, I guess? If that's what you were looking for, so be it. Me? I happen to need a little bit more substance in my cinema. Yeah, I know, it's just a superhero movie, but does that mean that it has to pander to the lowest common denominator at the same time? Deadpool is for beta male nerds who think that listening to Shoop as they dangle their legs is somehow ironically funny and cool. That scene was for the people who get it. Yuck, really? Who are you? This is what you spend your money on? This is what you think the future of, of cinema is, Deadpool? Making some fourth wall joke, and because you're not used to that, that it's somehow refreshing or unique? He's a Spider-Man ripoff with katanas and a load of pouches. Anybody who's a fan of somebody who calls themselves the Merc with a mouth is a borderline asshole and deserves a slow acid-filled death. That guy, the 33-year-old guy wearing a Deadpool belt and a chain wallet, you're a fucking nightmare, sir, and everyone is laughing at you. I know that I am. So that's Deadpool and his creator, and most of you will run out and go see Deadpool 2, just like all the other superhero movies that people start dripping fluids over. Much like how I could just kill a man, this is something I can't understand. What fan of comic books eats this shit up? What fan of storytelling would enjoy the rotting dreck that is the Avengers sequel? Ant-Man, Thor. Are you gonna sit there and tell me that these movies are good? Just because you enjoyed a movie doesn't make it a good movie. Deadpool's father is a ripoff, hacky dad joke slinging idiot, and the shit fruit doesn't fall far at all from the shit tree. Movie pass and all, I am passing on this completely, as well as Avengers Infinity Wars, Iron Man 11 Teen, and whichever subpar screenplay managed to pass as a blockbuster film these days. You want to watch a movie with something to say? Go see Shape of Water. Go see Three Billboards. Superhero films have become the inbred cousin of wrestling with soap opera storylines leading up to a big pay-per-view. Fuck, man. Wrestling is way more interesting anyway. Show me a heel turn. Show me a face turn. There's no CGI in wrestling. Those bumps are real. Disposable, interchangeable villains and convoluted screenplays with too many characters are nothing that I am interested in personally. Deadpool 2 opens on May 18th, and Rob Liefeld has a writing credit for the screenplay, so be warned. Also be warned if I ever hear you utter the phrase Merc with a mouth within earshot of me because I will legitimately fucking kill you with my dirty dick beaters. If you're a horror fan, then you're a fan of Stephen King. There's no questions asked. I know these podcasts have been really John Carpenter heavy, but fuck man, I love John Carpenter. Especially when paired with Stephen King source material. John, if you're out there listening, please don't die before I finish my screenplay for the Thing sequel. For those unfamiliar, Christine is the story about a young nerdy high schooler named Arnie. Arnie's jock friend Dennis has a super cute girlfriend and a super sweet muscle car, the envy of all socially outcast high schoolers. Life changes completely for Arnie when he comes across a decimated red 1958 Plymouth Fury named Christine rotting away on George LeBay's front yard with a for sale sign in the window. Unknown to Arnie, the original owner George LeBay's brother Roland committed suicide inside of Christine. 
As the film progresses, we learn of Christine's evil intent as well as her jealousy towards Arnie's new girlfriend. The relationship between man and machine solidifies and Arnie and Christine begin this sensual love affair with one another. The love between a man and his car, amplified to the point of personification. After Christine is more or less destroyed by Jim Morrison, no, wait a second, that's, that's not right. After Christine is more or less destroyed by Glenn Danzig, and wait a second, no, 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 no. After Christine is more or less destroyed by Buddy Repperton and his gang, Arnie finds the mangled wreck of his new love beaten, destroyed, and with a fresh turd laid right on the dashboard. It's now that Christine shows her true self to Arnie. She's comfortable enough to take her clothes off, let's say, and show Arnie all of her intimate secrets. Arnie caresses and coddles his love, letting her know that everything will be okay and he'll fix it. Arnie sees Christine's supernatural potential as she teases him with the hope of self-repair. She plays hard to get by not fully fixing herself when she totally could have. Arnie takes a few paces back, he turns to his mutual love and demands, show me. And boy does she. Instantly after Arnie's request, her brights shine loudly to gain his full attention as she begins to seductively strip for him and make herself factory perfect just for her man. Christine shows him her deepest secret, and Arnie loves her even more for showing him. This is why she wouldn't do this for George LeBay. George did not love her like Arnie did. Christine could fix herself. She didn't need George to do it for her, but why should she? Why should she let this man into her life whom she didn't love, who didn't love her? Why should she open up her ultimate secret to this caretaker, some charlatan looking to make a quick buck off of her used-up, cumbersome existence? Then along comes Arnie, young, naive Arnie. He exhibits a true effort in wanting to restore Christine back to her former beauty. This is the motivation that Christine needs to believe in herself again. She needs the pure, genuine love of Arnie to give her the strength and become whole again. We witness the lovemaking of Arnie and Christine in Darnell's garage, where Arnie is working to restore his only love, his only social partner who doesn't judge him and only loves him for who he is and what his love provides. Christine is vulnerable, she's weak, she's been beaten, she's been abused, she's found broken and demolished by Arnie in the dead of night at Darnell's garage. Now it's here, after hours in Darnell's garage, that a teenage boy and his beat-up classic car make love to one another. Not some sick fuck who likes to rub his dick on rusty cars. A true and passionate lovemaking session between a man and his first car. What kid can't identify with that? Christine doesn't need no man to fix her, and she shows Arnie by seductively performing for him in what I can only describe as a full-on triple-X porno scene between a man and his demonically possessed car. The scene is pure sex, it's dripping in blinding love for one another. Christine's willingness to open up to Arnie shows him a vulnerability that he can now identify with, which he's never experienced before. They make love in that garage for the first time and it's oddly beautiful. She can't wait to show him all the things that she can be for him. It's the first time that Arnie feels a positive bond with a member of the opposite sex, albeit a hunk of mechanized steel. The dance is seductive and raw. The score that plays features a striptease-esque saxophone riff as she offers herself to Arnie, who watches entranced like a teenage boy seeing his first pair of tits. Arnie, being the outcast that he is, is actually having his very first sexual experience with this chunk of mangled steel, and she's reciprocating every step of the way. 
I don't mean to interrupt this sensual interlude, but I do really have to call attention here to the amazing practical effects of this film. This was 1984, and the scenes where Christine reconstructs herself hold up about 35 years later. I know some of it is really just reverse shots, but I'd rather see that than millions of dollars worth of bad CGI. <coughs> Deadpool. Christine has fallen in love with Arnie's love for her. She's comfortable with Arnie seeing her for who she is, and he only loves her more for it. It's now that Christine shares the same passions as Arnie, which just happened to include killing all of his enemies. It's kind of hard to feel bad for Christine by the end of the movie. Sure, she's poisoned Arnie's mind with her love, but isn't that the natural course of true, honest love? Wouldn't you fight your true love's enemies no matter what, no matter what the pretense? And that's exactly what Christine does for Arnie. She hunts down his bullies methodically, one by one, but in the process, she harbors jealousy for Arnie's human girlfriend. And why shouldn't she? Arnie's love is now being divided by his true love and his human girlfriend. If I were Christine, I'd be pretty pissed off too if you confided all your love in me and then started making out with some other girl in my front seat. Yeah, that's right. Choke on it, bitch. Arnie and Christine have a love, a bond that is beyond all mortal knowledge. Their quote friends, however, decide what's good and not good for Arnie and actually plot to assassinate his true love. She only defends herself in my eyes, protecting the only person that truly loves her for who she is. She even rebels against Darnell himself when he attempts to enter her and she murders him for his violation of her. Is Christine an evil murderous car? Or simply a woman in love with her man who will defend him no matter what? If your so-called friends tried interfering with a loving relationship, are they actually your friends? Sure, Arnie was becoming somebody that they didn't like, but the selfishness of Dennis and Lee was what ultimately led to Arnie's, and I suppose Christine's, demise. Arnie loved his relationship with Christine, and she loved him back in full. Are we watching a story about a possessed killer car with malicious intent? Or a story about a man in a truly sentient car, deeply in love with one another, who would do absolutely anything for one another, only stymied by the selfishness and holier-than-thou attitudes of both Dennis and Lee? Now, it's easy to watch this film and regard Arnie as a weak shrimp who obtains the confidence needed to vanquish his enemies via a classic car, but the real story is about a wimpy guy who gains confidence in himself through the support and assistance of his lover. A love story between two unexpected souls against the entire fucking world, together. Two living souls constantly abused and tortured, only finding solace and love with one another. Fuck Dennis, fuck Lee. Arnie and Christine had a true love, a non-superficial love which transcended all sex and physicalities. They had a beautiful connection which nobody understood. Not best friends, not lovers. And while Christine's love for Arnie was nothing but pure, she was murdered, defending her true love to the death quite literally. So Christine was not an evil murdering bitch. She was a loving, caring soul who wanted nothing more than to protect her lover, her soulmate, from those who would do their love harm. Christine's a Greek tragedy. She wasn't some possessed car out to kill just anybody. She loved her man and wanted nothing more than to protect him. Love is something that you can't define personally. It's for you and your lover to define. Arnie and Christine had a loving bond that no two other living beings could share. I don't look at the ending of Christine as a victory for Dennis and Lee. 
but more like a selfish triumph that only catered to the wants and needs of two people who just didn't understand the passion of two socially different beings madly in love with one another. It's tragic as fuck, and I for one will never see Christine as a villain, but only a protective but sometimes jealous lover who wants to provide nothing but the utmost protection for her true love and soulmate, and the only person to ever give a hot shit about her, besides old Roly LeBay. God damn shitters. Thanks for checking out this fourth episode of Pancakes House. The show can be heard on iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and more. For questions, comments, or advertising opportunities, feel free to reach me at pancakeshousepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at 2PancakesHouse or on my Patreon page at patreon.com pancakeshouse for access to exclusive material and extras. See you next week. But. <laughs>